A good meal, a job well done, a pleasurable love life, a completed New York Times crossword puzzle, all satisfying experiences. How about a 100-mile endurance run or the sensation of relief after a painful physical experience? Can those also be satisfying experiences? We will continue our discussion of the neurological roots of the drive for satisfaction on this clinician's roundtable on Reach MD XM233. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Atlanta is my guest, Dr. Gregory Burns of Emory University. Dr. Burns is an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Emory University and biomedical engineering at Georgia Institute of Technology. His work in functional imaging extends into several areas of computational and cognitive neuroscience, including novelty and reward processing, human social interaction, and neural economics. He is the author of the book Satisfaction and a forthcoming book entitled Iconoclast. Welcome, Dr. Burns. Pleasure to be here. Dr. Burns, if one is very driven to experience novelty and challenge over and over for multiple moments of satisfaction, wouldn't that person be generally dissatisfied <laughs> in between those episodes as compared to someone with a low drive for novelty and challenge, but who feels more or less content with their life? Yeah, there is, uh, there's a bit of irony in that, and I think you're probably right. There is a solution to it, though, and that is to realize that the satisfaction of any of these pursuits is not in the outcome but in the pursuit itself. So all you have to do is make the pursuit last longer than you originally thought. <laughs> and how would one do that? Well, you pick your, your activities and your pursuits carefully so that you focus on the experience itself. You had mentioned running 100 miles. So one of the things uh, that I became interested in writing this book was this growing sport called ultramarathoning. And uh, for those of you who haven't heard of ultramarathoning, it is running a race, usually 100 miles, nonstop. Typically, it takes about 24 to 36 hours to do one of these. Now, when I heard about them, I really didn't understand why people would want to do this. Um, I mean, I, I run and, and jog casually, but running 100 miles just sounds downright unpleasant. Yes, it does. So one of the things I did in writing this book was to go and work at one of the aid stations for probably the most famous of these, which is a race that's run out of Lake Tahoe every year. And what I observed um, was quite interesting, was that, yes, in fact, it's extremely painful and that people are in a lot of discomfort doing it. And they will freely admit to this. And in the same sentence, said that they absolutely love it. So this is, you know, this is kind of strange. Either... Uh, these are true masochists, or there's something deeper going on in how the, the brain works and, and how it deals with uh, discomfort, and in this case, uh, a very extended experience. Right. So now we're looking at this extended experience of challenge and novelty, but in combination with pain. Um, let's let's spend a little time on, on pain first. In its relationship to satisfaction, I think a little background um, information is interesting. You mentioned in your book the story of the psychiatrist Robert Heath and his experiments from the 1950s. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so Heath was a, a psychiatrist slash neurosurgeon who came out of Columbia in the late 40s during the heyday of frontal lobotomy. And Heath realized that uh, disconnecting people's frontal lobes was not a good thing that it left them in kind of a vegetative catatonic state, which although they weren't flagrantly crazy, they weren't quite there either. 
And so his idea was instead of cutting off the frontal lobes was to stimulate the brainstem. And he thought that this would correct an imbalance between the frontal lobes and the brainstem. Long story short, he had to leave New York to do this and went to New Orleans to set up shop at Tulane, where even to this day he remains one of the few people to have done this. But he, he implanted electrodes in people's brain stems and stimulated different parts and observed their reactions. What he found was kind of a wide range of responses depending on where the electrode was, was placed, ranging from outright pleasurable feelings to extremely unpleasant feelings. Now, in retrospect, a lot of this probably had to do with where he placed his electrodes, which was kind of crude at the time. But I think what it underscores, kind of viewing it through the modern lens of neuroscience, is that depending on where you are in the brainstem, you can amplify feelings about whatever, uh, whether it's good or bad, and that under the right conditions, these things can flip back and forth very quickly between what's something that's pleasant can become painful and vice versa. Now, of course, you're not using these techniques today, but in your own research, you've demonstrated, as he did, that there are mediating factors for pain. Right. Although I will, I will add that, in fact, these techniques are kind of undergoing a resurgence in interest and popularity because we do use brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease, mm, right. and it's also being used for depression now. But anyway, to understand pain, pain is not a unitary phenomenon that there's at least four important aspects to it that define what we mean by pain. The first is essentially a peripheral phenomena of how hard a pain uh, sensor in the skin or body is, is stimulated. That's the simplest to understand. The other thing that happens when these, these um, they're called nociceptors, when they start firing is that the person starts devoting more attention to that part of the body, and they may have emotional feelings, and they may even have visceral reactions. And all four of those constitute what we would call pain as a mental phenomena. And what's interesting about that is because it's multifaceted, means that the mind, that the person has some amount of control over how much pain they experience and how they deal with it. The most effect probably occurs from attention and the emotional reaction. So a lot of pain has to do with simply how you react to the things that, that are causing the pain. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Gregory Burns, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University. So, Dr. Burns, how can pain be satisfying? Well, in one way it's complex, and the other way it's as simple as mind over matter. So, the ultramarathoners, for example, are in a, a lot of pain but they de derive tremendous amount of satisfaction from it because they choose to. So the key element of deriving satisfaction from pain is the element of control, that the individual has to have control over it. There's no way to experience satisfaction from pain that's uncontrollable. But what's interesting is you can derive satisfaction, or some people can, when they choose to do it. So if they were experiencing those sensations without participating in the run, they would not be happy if this was being done to them. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so control is, is the key factor. And it's, it's probably the only factor that, that makes pain possibly pleasurable. Now, as I talk about in the book, a lot of this is mapped out biologically in the brain. And we've talked about dopamine as being a key player in motivation and causing 
the, the person to do something. The other chemical that we haven't talked about is cortisol, which is known as the stress hormone, and usually gets a, a bad rap um, in most discussions. It's usually in the same sentence framed as something that either causes obesity or brain damage. But cortisol is absolutely necessary to, to be alive. It maintains uh, the autonomic nervous system, tone over, over things like heart rate and respiration and blood pressure. And you need cortisol when you're exercising. Otherwise, your heart rate and blood pressure wouldn't go up like they need to. And don't we release cortisol when we're stressed as well? Of course we do. That just points out that there are good types of stress and bad types of stress. So the good types are the ones that we have control over, like exercise or any physical activity. Now, what's interesting about cortisol is it doesn't just have effects in the body, but it also has direct effects in the brain. It turns out that there is a synergism between cortisol and dopamine, where they augment each other's actions in the striatum, a key part of the motivation system. So it's the combination of cortisol and dopamine from novelty that gives the feeling of satisfaction. I think so. I think so. That's speculation at this point because no one, it's, it's very difficult to study those directly in the laboratory setting but all the evidence points that way. Mm -hmm. Some scientists do not believe that discomfort is an ingredient, a necessary ingredient in satisfaction. Flow was a very popular book in the early 90s, and the idea in it was that you would find challenges that met your skill level in order to find happiness. And it's not really that inconsistent with your concept of a need for novelty. That's right. The Flow was, like you said, a very popular and influential book. And what the author said was that there's actually a zone of comfort or discomfort. And flow occurs, which I would, I would say is very similar to, to my notion of satisfaction, when you're challenging yourself, but not so much that you're frustrating yourself. It's probably the best way to, to characterize the flow zone. So to me, that means there has to be an element of challenge, which may involve discomfort for a little while, maybe not for a long time, but enough that it's something that the person can handle and not feel overwhelmed by. So for some people, the people who want to run those 100-mile runs, that's what they need to get there. But for a lot of people, they don't have to go through that kind of pain. Exactly, exactly. Dr. Burns, would you like to give us a little glimpse or preview of your upcoming book? Sure, I'd be happy to. Iconoclast takes a similar approach to human behavior that I did in Satisfaction. And the idea is that by looking into the brain, at human decisions and decision-making in general, we can understand what makes for an iconoclastic or innovative brain. And this book is pitched to a slightly different audience. This is actually a business book published by Harvard Business School Press. The premise is, is that by understanding how different brain systems work under elements of risk, which we've talked about, and decision-making, that there are characteristics that emerge that are common to what we would call iconoclasts. And these are the people who stand up for what they believe against uh, conventional wisdom and ultimately are proved right and often go on to create whole new industries and technologies. Well, this is interesting. So you're really going to pursue those individual differences in brain activity. Yeah, I think the individual differences is where some of the most interesting uh, work is happening these days in neuroeconomics. I was looking through the book, reading the book, Satisfaction. What kept coming to mind were the kind of the exceptions to the rule, that, that there are a lot of people who are not on that hedonic treadmill and it, don't appear to be looking for these novel experiences in order to find satisfaction. 
I wonder well, if they bought the pleasure principle and they're just okay <laughs> with that. Yeah. You know, I, I remain unconvinced about that. And the reason I say that is that a lot of people who say that they don't like novelty are equating satisfaction with comfort. And I don't think those are the same. I mean, yeah, it's comfortable to, you know, sit on the couch and, and you know, watch a football game on a Sunday afternoon. Is it satisfying? doesn't really meet my definition necessarily. So it's the difference between contentment and satisfaction. I, you can be content. Comfort. Let's call Com- it comfort. Okay, comfortable. I think the key difference is passivity versus activity. Very interesting. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Gregory Burns, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University. Thank you, Dr. Burns. Thank you. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>